morning we return to the passage we've been studying for several months now. The passage that goes from John 14 to John 16, our Lord's farewell discourse. We find ourselves now in chapter 16. Uh, we went through the first part of verse 4 uh, last week, and now we're going to pick it up in uh, kind of the middle of verse 4. We're, I'm sorry, it's actually the entirety of verse 4. Um, my eyes are just blending together 3 and 4. But verse 4, which for some reason is placed in uh, the preceding paragraph rather than the following one in the Bible translation I have, but I think it really does belong to um, what follows. I've said these things to you. I'm sorry, that's not correct. Yes, I'm right. It is the middle of verse 4. The new paragraph comes in the middle of verse 4. Look at that. I was right. <laughs> I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. That does belong to the following. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It's in this portion of scripture, the next paragraph included, where our Lord returns to the subject of the coming of the helper, or the paraclete, that's the Greek word, the Holy Spirit, it's translated in a number of ways. Uh, It's the one that's called the Spirit of Truth, in the words of verse 16. Also in chapter 14 and verse 17, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. It's this gift that the risen Christ will give to his people that again comes into focus. And in fact, in verse 7 to verse 15 in John chapter 16, we're given probably the most extensive exposition of the Spirit and his work to be found certainly in the Gospels. The only thing that would rival this is Paul's statements in Romans chapter 8. These are full and comprehensive uh, statements about the Holy Spirit and his work and his ministry in the world and his work and his ministry to believers. But uh, before we get to the specifics of what this passage actually contains, I want to just ask a question. I want to raise a question, so get your thinking caps on this morning. I have a question for you. Why does our Lord return to the subject of the Holy Spirit in this part of his teaching. Why does he come back to it? Now again, he introduced the subject in chapter 14 because these disciples were in a distressed, dispirited, and disheartened frame of mind because Jesus told them he is leaving and where he was going. They could not follow. And so chapter 14 just largely emphasizes the gifts that the Father and Son will give to his people upon the Son's successful completion of his work. Jesus says, I go to the Father in the house of many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I go to um, give you the Spirit. I answer your prayers. Time and again, uh, just wonderful promises are given throughout the whole of the 14th chapter. 
And then when we come to chapter 15, as we saw, it moved on to our responsibilities, the defining of the believer's responsibilities. We're responsible to abide in him, to abide in his love, and then to display that love to others, to display that love to one another within the framework of the church, to love one another as he has loved us, to be called into a fellowship of love where the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Father and Son love his people and the Spirit is given as the bond of love and God's people are to love Christ and love the Father and love the Spirit and love one another as we have been loved. It's a fellowship of love we're called into as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, at that point, you don't hear much about the Spirit, although I believe the Spirit's in the background. He's in the background of almost anything God does in the world. Um, but he, wrote, he, he makes an appearance again in the end of chapter 15 when Jesus says, the world is going to hate you. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before you. It's on the backdrop of the hatred of the world that Jesus again calls attention to the Helper. In the midst of the world's animus, their hatred, their disdain, their active hostility against you, you need the Spirit. It's the Spirit who will help you, who will bear witness about me, and strengthen you to bear witness about me, even in the face of the world's hatred. But Jesus doesn't just then relent upon his insistence that he's sending these disciples out as... As, uh, as he says in the, the Synoptic Gospels, as uh, sheep in the midst of wolves, troubles at hand, dangers afoot. They're going to excommunicate you. They're going to put you out of their synagogues. They're going to say, you're the last people in the world we want to have fellowship with. The last people in the world we want to be around. And not only are they going to do that, they're going to put you to death. They're going to bring decrees of execution against you because they're thinks in so doing they are serving God. And so you might say that our Lord, upon a backdrop of the active hostile efforts of leaders of both church and state, synagogue and legal authorities that have the power to pass sentences of execution against you, these people are seeking to bring you, as they brought me, under legal jeopardy. Under legal jeopardy. To excommunicate you from the synagogues, to execute you from the government authorities. It's in the face of legal jeopardy that our Lord once again teaches about the Spirit as the coming of the Spirit changes things significantly. Again, when you think of the synagogue casting you out, you think of the civil authorities looking to put you to death, you might think that uh, all the power, all the influence, all the cards are in the hands of these hostile powers. Everything's in the hand of civil and religious authorities against the church. And what Jesus does in speaking about the coming of the Spirit is he's turning it all around. I never remember what it is, whether it's the good defense that 
can compensate for the bad offense or the bad good offense for the bad defense. I guess it depends on what you have. If you have a good offense, you'd say it compensates for bad defense. You have a good defense for bad offense. But Jesus takes his people who seem to be on the defensive. We don't have much of a defense. And he says, not only will I give you an ability to defend yourself, I'm going to give you tools to put you on the offensive. But there's another introductory thing I need to say. And that is, as we approach what our Lord teaches in verse 7 down to verse 15, Jesus says something odd. He says something very curious, something that just on the surface of things seems to be manifestly untrue. Does that shock you? Well, just on the surface, it seems to be untrue. Look at the words. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Well, we got that. We can get that. Then he didn't need to tell them about these people that would seek to cast them out of the synagogue or put them to death because he was there to defend them. So they never got near them, to touch them, because his time was not yet. But now his time had come. And he was going to himself come under legal jeopardy. He was going to be delivered into the hands of authorities who were going to place sentence of execution against him. Now I am going to him who sent me by way of the cross, by way of the open tomb, by way of the ascension into the Father's presence. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Does that sound odd to you? I mean, if you've been reading the farewell discourse, you're probably going to say, wait a minute, Jesus. They didn't ask, where are you going? That seems to be all they were asking. You said, I'm going away from you, and where I'm going, as I said to the Jews, you cannot come. And they're asking, Lord, where? Where are you going? Look at it in chapter 13 and verse 36. Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? How does Jesus say you didn't ask? Peter asked, where are you going? Thomas in chapter 14 and verse 5 said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Lord, we want to know where you're going. We want to know the way. That's implied. You haven't haven't answered what we're asking to know. You say you're going away. Isn't this a real contradiction? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Well, there's an old principle of Bible interpretation. It really does go back to the early church controversies about the deity of Jesus when a group called the Arians were denying Christ's deity and they were coming up with passages that seemed to sound as if Jesus was less than God. I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And the sound of that is, well, maybe the Arians are right. And the theologians of the church said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have the sound of these passages, but you have to explore what is the sense of the passage. And those are two different things. And people might have a surface reading of a passage, come up with something that sounds as if, that's contradictory, that sounds as if Jesus misspoke, he said something wrong. But when you look into the sense of the thing, there is a clear sense that I think makes it very clear what our Lord means. 
You see, every question, every statement of these disciples of Jesus to Jesus was time and again rooted in self-interest. They were not interested in where he was going and why and what he was doing. They were not inquiring about that. All they were inquiring about is, Lord, we're, we're going to be in a fix if you go. They were concerned about his departure from them, not his arrival in glory. Now, I'm sure that Tom and Vivian, in going to Germany, have arranged for both departure and arrival of someone taking them to the airport and when you get to Germany somebody taking them from the airport and your concern is for the whole, the whole trip well Jesus is concerned about the whole trip his leaving his disciples yes but also his arriving in the presence of his father having obtained eternal redemption for us and these disciples are just concerned about where his departure would leave them, not where his arrival in the presence of the Father, would, what, what that would bring them. You see, he says to them, I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Not an inquiring mind, Lord, you're leaving. Now, where you're going, what's going to happen, how is this going to play out? No, not, they're not asking that. They're not asking about the arrival. They're only concerned about the departure. Yes, they had the right to be concerned about his departure. But they had also a need to know about the destination. Where he was going. And what that would mean from them. And again, if our Lord is turning around this whole matter of the enemies on the offensive against a defenseless people and giving us tools to go on the offensive and put them on the defensive, in his words, he's also addressing his disciples from this vantage point of understanding that his going away is for their advantage. See, they were not being concerned about Jesus and his things. They were being concerned about their own things. What Jesus meant to them and what his departure would mean for him. They weren't concerned about what their, his departure would mean for Jesus. Glorified at the right hand of the majesty on high. They weren't concerned that he would return to the Father from where he had come. That, uh, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you from the foundation of the world. Shouldn't they be concerned about that? That Jesus would be glorified? But now Jesus is going to say, you not, might not be concerned about my things, but I'm concerned about your things. I'm concerned that you would know, even in your self-centeredness, that my going away from you is, is beneficial. It's for your advantage. I think of Washington's farewell speech to, I guess it's the Congress. It took place in New York, I believe. And uh, people were crestfallen. He was the, the president. They figured he'd be president for life. And Washington begins to explain why it was to the advantage of a burgeoning democracy not to have a lifetime president. Why it was to the advantage of the, uh, American democracy for him to leave and retire from public life. It was, again, something he wanted to go back home to Virginia, but it was something he was telling the nation, it's for your advantage. And so Jesus also is speaking in that way to a people who were crestfallen. Our president is leaving. Our Lord is leaving. And as Washington told the nation, so Jesus tells his disciples, 
I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now we have a description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this passage. And this ministry of the Holy Spirit has a a couple of points to it. First, the Spirit's ministry with respect to the world. What the Spirit will do when He comes, firstly, with respect to the world. That's in verses 8 to 10. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And He breaks that down concerning each of those things. And so that's with respect to the world. And then in verses 12 and 13... It's the question of his ministry to the disciples. I have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now when the Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. So first it's what the Spirit will do for the world, convicting the world, and then what the Spirit will do for you, guiding you into all the truth. And then the final thing in verses 14 and 15 is the Spirit, again, with respect to Jesus. He will glorify me. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So those are the points of our division, but this morning we'll only have time for the first. What is the Spirit's work with respect to the world? And just in a nutshell, Jesus is telling his disciples that the Spirit is the prosecuting attorney who comes to place the world on trial. He will convict the world. It's a legal term. The world that's about to convict Jesus. The world that's about in the persons of the Jewish and Gentile authorities to pass sentence of execution upon Jesus. That world that will soon seek to convict the disciples, put them on trial, put them to to prison, to put them to death. The world is about to be placed on trial by the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the way this works is that the Spirit doesn't work in isolation from human activity. That's why Jesus is preparing these men. The Spirit uses the testimony of the apostles to do this, to achieve this result of convicting the world. These disciples go into the world to take Jesus' ministry further. As the Father has sent me, he's going to say to them, so send I you. And he breathes on them to receive the Holy Spirit as he sends them into the world. They become his mouthpiece. They continue his work. They comprise his body. That's significant. The church is the body of Christ. Christ's body that was crucified to the cross is now in the right hand of the majesty on high, and yet, though he has that heavenly place of rule and authority, he continues to rule in the world as Lord of all things through his church, through his people. And the people of God, the apostles, their successors, in a real sense, when they're subject to Jesus, and subject to his words, and subject to the power and influence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, they become like the prophets of the Old Testament, bringing God's covenant lawsuit against the sinning people. Now the church brings God's lawsuit against the world for their disbelief, for their defiance of the grace of God, the grace of the gospel. The issues are similar, Old and New Testament. The issues are idolatry, injustice, false worship, ingratitude, 
That's not just Old Testament. That's New Testament too, folks. Every one of those things are New Testament as well as Old. But yet with the coming of Jesus, the work that He came to do in the publication of God's saving gospel, the magnitude of the crimes of the sinning nations of the world escalates in its gravity. The Spirit comes to convict the world, to put the world on trial with respect to sin. And Jesus says concerning sin, not because they violated the law, you might think that's the reason. They certainly were lawbreakers, no question. Sin is violation of God's law. And yet that's not what Jesus emphasizes the work of the Spirit will do. He says, sin because they do not believe in me. God's done something unparalleled. Sends his own son. And in his coming into the world, in his cross, in his conquest, through the cross, God's done something definitive that the world needs to know about. The world needs to hear. And it's as the world hears this gospel of what God has done in Christ, the Spirit does its work of convicting people of the high crime of unbelief. Again, it's not because they're lawbreakers. They are, of course, they're lawbreakers. But because they do not believe in me. Unbelief is certainly the capstone sin, but it's also the one the Spirit uses to convict of sin. But God sent His Son into the world. And your hearts found no place for Him. You remain resolute in your hatred and your opposition. They hated me without a cause, Jesus says. And what they've hated was one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. One who is so good, so worthy of universal acclaim. One who is so worthy of universal faith and obedience, they did not render to Jesus the honors that he was worthy to receive. And folks, the world seems, still needs to know that. The world still needs to know that. And the second thing, he convicts the world of righteousness. And again, we might think of righteousness in terms of the law that reveals righteousness, that uh, points out the path to right of righteousness. Um, but actually, I think what's happening here is that Jesus is thinking about these persecutors, both of himself and of his people, who simply think they're serving God and what they're doing. And they're just simply so off base in that thought. See, these people think that it's the Christians who are the great sinners. It's Jesus who was the great deceiver. It's Jesus who ate and drank with sinners. But you see, it's the reality of what God has done in Christ. It's the reality of the gospel. That God has raised him for our justification. That he was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification. It's his resurrection and his ascension at the right hand of the majesty on high that declares Jesus' vindication. 
He did not die for his own sins. He died for the sins of others. And these men that put him to death were not righteous men, but unrighteous men. Their whole sense of what right right demanded was perverted by the reality of sin. The only thing that would get them on base with what was right is to see that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That righteousness is not to be found in our zealous efforts to serve God that leads to the death of other people. In our self-righteous zeal that's not according to knowledge. It's in submission to God's grace and provision in Christ where righteousness is received through a crucified and risen Savior. It's concerning righteousness because I go to the Father having accomplished eternal salvation. And all of their efforts to see that that did not occur were unavailing. God's purpose is realized. Righteousness is brought in by the blood of the cross and by the open tomb and by the exalted king who sits upon the throne receiving all who come unto God through faith in him. Righteousness is to be seen in the reality of the, the crown of the vindication of Jesus and his righteousness I go to the Father concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged Again, the world thought they were the ones who were doing the judging. They thought they were in the position of being judges of the Son of God. They think they're in the position of being judges when they cash out of the synagogue and when they pass sentence of execution against the people of God. But the world's been judged in the fact that their sovereign, their Lord, the one who had dominion, Satan and his hosts, the powers of darkness, have been defeated. Their ruler has been cast out, Jesus says earlier in this gospel. Now the Son of Man is to be glorified and the Prince of this world is to be cast out. They think they're going to cast you out. I'm going to tell you, they're the ones cast out because their ruler is cast out. The victory has been won through the blood of the cross. The world's been judged in the person of the King of Iniquity of all the powers of darkness being overturned and defeated, the whole enterprise of human rebellion, the whole enterprise of unbelief, the whole enterprise of the rejection of the true and rightful king has been exposed and put on full display in the defeat of the powers of, the dark, of darkness by the crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus. What Jesus is telling us? Well, Jesus is telling us the Spirit's going to work through the gospel. It's going to work through the power of the gospel proclamation. They need to know what God has done in Christ to reconcile the world to himself, not imputing to them their trespasses and having had the message of reconciliation being bequeathed to us as the people of God. Here are the weapons in the hands of the Spirit to do battle against those who would put the disciples on trial as they had put their Lord on trial. 
Their quest against Jesus has failed. Their unbelief has proved invalid. Their sense of their own righteousness has been exposed. Their king's been defeated. It's the gospel that puts the world on trial. The spirit of truth is the ultimate prosecuting attorney. I think that's what Jesus is telling us here. And if so, what does that say to us? I think it's telling us we need to be gospel-centered people in the first place. Now, we think we have an ability to convince the world because we've taken a course in Christian apologetics, because we've gained the feeder arguments against unbelief, and we think we're going to go out into the world and just slay unbelief by the power of a superior argument. Again, I'm not saying don't learn those arguments. I'm saying make those arguments, yes. But make those arguments just in submission to or subordination to or with the open confidence in the message of the gospel, captivating hearts. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and the power that your faith would not stand in the, the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. We need to have more confidence in God's gospel and God's word. That's the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. It's not our humanly con, con, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Contrived arguments. And again, I don't despise those arguments. I don't despise the discipline of apologetics. Not at all. I'm just saying, don't make that your confidence. Don't make that your trust. It's the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And we need to be a people dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not our efforts to Christianize the world through some program of our own contrivance. The way the world is Christianized is by the gospel coming with power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Paul said to the Romans, I've made that whole circuit from Illyricum, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and I've no longer room in this part, these parts. Why? Because I've saturated this whole region with gospel truth, with gospel teaching and I place the results in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God to do His work of putting the world on trial, of bringing the world to conviction, of bringing the world to see their sins I mean most of us can think of it even in terms of our own experience what was the most compelling thing that brought us to faith in Christ? Was it that somebody came with a well-reasoned argument? Or somebody came with a, a bludgeon to bludgeon us into faith? No. It was just the reality of how God's Spirit worked through the Word to open our sin-blinded eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Jeremiah thought about his own inadequacies to go up against all of the institutions of Israel, to go up against the temple, to go up against the kings, 
to go up against the priests and the prophets and the leaders of the nation with a message that was not popular and that he would be hated and there would be trouble. Well, it was God's words. It's simply, what I put into your mouth, you say. And I'm going to make your faces like flint. I'm going to give you the ability to stand in the face of anything the world will throw at you. But you just speak my words faithfully. But ultimately, it's my words that are truth. It's my words that are going to be abiding. I stand over my words to perform it. And it's ultimately the people of this world that are going to be ashamed. It's never going to be the believer. Our faith is firmly centered in realities that will not fade and truths that will not ever be overthrown in a gospel that ultimately will never be defeated because Christ rules, Christ reigns. He has conquered. His cross has won the victory. And his gospel will extend unto the ends of the earth. Isn't it an amazing thing? We're here in 2022. And Christianity is still thriving. I mean, we complain it's not like it once was, we think, in America, whatever we think their reality is. But, I mean, there was a time when this group, that group, the next group said, we're just going to smash this Christian thing to smithereens. That was the, the hope of communism. We're just going to re-educate people. We're going to take away their hope in this Jesus. And, you know, their efforts were all for nothing. Christianity, if anything, is thrives greater in modern-day China than when we had Western missionaries being sent over there at great expense. It was Christians in the land that simply lived and spoke and taught God's Word in ways that were convincing and compelling and brought others to see and know and believe. And it wasn't the communist authorities that were putting the Christians on trial. It's God's word that puts that whole system on trial. And that whole system will come to nothing ultimately. May God be pleased to give us confidence in his gospel, in his word, in his son, in his spirit, and the knowledge of the work of the spirit with respect to this world is to put it on trial. The prosecuting eternity will ultimately put this world on trial when God's people are faithful to the message the Spirit uses and blesses. May we be encouraged. Let's go to prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word this morning. We're thankful for the clarity of our Lord's words. Even though oftentimes we dismiss so much of it, we pray that we would be people that are attentive to the words of Jesus, we would receive them with teachable hearts and spirits. We would be conformed to what he has said, that, Father, we might live in the light of the Lord, and we might be useful in your hands for the work that you've called us to do, whether great work or small, whether work in large scenes or small scenes. Yet faithfulness would be that which characterizes your people wherever we are and whatever we do. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your your people as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.